James chapter 1, if you'll turn in your scriptures, we'll be back in that passage today. I'm not a country western music fan, but when I was growing up as a kid back in the 1970s, there was this singer and his name was Mac Davis. And in 1970, he recorded a song, and the title was this, It's Hard to Be Humble. It became a top 20 hit that year. And it, what it really does, and I want to just read the chorus to you, it typifies with exaggerated humor um, what boasting is all about. And here's what the chorus says. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. (laughs) To know me is to love me. I must be a wonderful man. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best that I can. (laughs) Now, I'm not sure, but I thought I heard Pastor Dave singing that song in the office the other day. (laughs) Webster's Dictionary defines boast in this way. Primary definition, to praise oneself extravagantly in speech. I think he did a good job of that. Secondary, to speak of or assert oneself with excessive pride. Um, I think you're going to agree with me if you are on social media. You certainly know this is true, that boasting is commonly accepted as much in the 21st century as it was in the 1st century. Let me give you some examples. I have a book in my library, and the title is called The Humble Brag. Those two words really don't go together, do they? But it is, the subtitle is The Art of False Modesty. And in it, the author, Harris Willits, uh, records literal statements that people made on social media. I think most of them were on t- from Twitter. Let me just give you a few of them about the false art of modesty. Just follow my taxes. Everyone was right. Mo money, mo problems. Flying first class is so ugh. I hate having all of this money. What will I do with it? And my favorite one, I hate when I go into a store to get something to eat and the male staff are too busy flirting with me to get my order right. So annoying. And if that's not enough, we have it when we drive around in traffic, you'll see what is called bumper boasting. Have you seen the bumper boasting on the, on the bumper things on there? It says one of them, I think the most on, uh, one common one is this. My child is a honor student. Now, you feel really bad if you have that on the back of your car right now. All right? But again, it's about boasting, right? So there is one that trumps that, and it says this. My wrestler pinned your honor student. (laughs) Um, So again, boasting is everywhere. Peggy Klaus wrote a book called Brag, How to Toot Your Own Horn Without Blowing It. And... In it, she lists a number of different kinds of ways that you can boast about yourself. And here's a couple of the most common ones. She says it's called boasting disclaimer. When you say this, well, I don't mean to brag, but... And then you tell people how great you really are. But you have the disclaimer in the front because you want to really appear to be humble. And the other one is the one I love. I think is the most common one. Literally, I'm not, <laughs> I hear it all the time. It's called the indirect boast. 
I don't know that I'm that great, but my boss says I'm the best worker he has. Again, indirect boasting. Boasting was acceptable in the first century as well. The Apostle Paul, if you read the New Testament and the 13 epistles that he wrote, he uses the word boast 36 times. Now, in and of itself, the word boast is a neutral term. It's not good or bad inherently, but the context always determines how it is to be used. James, our letter here, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, the leader of the church of Jerusalem, uses the word boast four times in this letter. And he uses it once in our chapter. He uses it once in chapter 3 and verse 14 and twice in chapter 4 and verse 16. And eventually, as we make our way through this letter, we're going to get there. But these three passages, um, they use both sides of it, James does. There's a positive boast, and that's the one he's going to say this morning. And then the other two are about negative boasting. But when you put them all three together, as I looked at them this week, here's the principle I think it's pretty obvious that comes out of it, and that is this. When we boast right, we live right. In other words, what we boast in is what we live for. Let me say that again. What we boast in, we live for. So let's this morning take a few minutes together and unpack Chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, and what we're going to do, because remember, this is the nonfiction faith test. That's what this is about, whether your faith is real. James is giving us a lot of them, and testing and trials were one of them. Wisdom was another one we've seen so far, and this morning we're going to take the boast test. So let me tell you what it would look like if you had a true faith, a biblical faith in Jesus Christ, a saving faith when it comes to boasting. A non-fiction faith will be one that demonstrates the right kind of boasting. And that right kind of boasting is a counter-cultural boast about what God values and what God treasures the most. So you can already see that it's going to fly in the face of the world around us. A non-fiction faith you're going to see this morning, adopts God's view of status and wealth. So you might be thinking, Pastor Walker, why is this so important? I mean, and and how do these verses, 9 through 11, it it almost reads, when you read this passage, it almost reads like he's got all this stuff going, and then 9 through 11, he kind of just throws it in there as an off-topic, but he really doesn't. It's actually connected to verses 2 through 8, and here's how it's connected. See, he's been talking about you need wisdom from God. If you ask him, he'll give it generously to you. But don't be double-minded. Ask in faith. And so he talks about wisdom and how you get it and that God will give it to you. And then he all of a sudden starts talking about wealth and money. How does it work together? Well, let me tell you this. And maybe you've experienced this. Because we will not handle trials and temptations. Hear me. We will not handle well our trials and temptations if we are pursuing wealth as a key to happiness and satisfaction. Do you get that? Here's why money fits into a talk about testings and trials. Because one of the, way, one of the main things that causes us problems when difficulties come into our life is our view of money and things. And so James, who wrote this epistle, is like his master and his half-brother, the Lord Jesus, he likes to talk about material possessions and money and things. He does it in our chapter. He does it in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, 4, 1 through 4, 13 through 17, chapter 5, 1 through 6. So numbers of times, he's going to give us a theology, as it were, by the time we're done, about how we should view wealth and status. And so we're going to start down that road together. 
For James, poverty and riches are both a test. Both a test. Now you hear that riches are a test and you go, really? In fact, I, I thought of this week. How many have ever seen, I know it's old, Fiddler on the Roof. You ever seen Fiddler on the Roof? Remember Tevya, the, the main character? He's always talking to God by himself and he puts his hands up in the air like a Jewish person and, and he says this. He says, you know how he talks, if riches are a trial and a test, then Lord, smite me with it. And, and maybe that's how you feel this morning. Say, well, riches are a test. I'd prefer that one because I've been experiencing the other one for quite a bit now. But here's what James says. They both are a test. Let me show you what I mean. The first thing that James sets out for us in verse 9, look at the text, let the brother, lowly brother, the low brother, we take it to be the poor brother, he boasts, here's what he should boast in, boast in your exaltation. So if you're low because you've been a, become a Christian, boast in this, that God has taken you from this status to high status. That's what the word exaltation is. You are low down here and God puts you up here. Not in society, but spiritually speaking. Rejoice in that. Boast in it. Make that your praise. But there's a second boast, he says, in verse 9. And let the rich, here's what he should boast in. So they're both going to boast. Boast in his humiliation. Now, here's what he says. If you're rich and your status is up here, boast in that God has brought you low. Because if he didn't, you wouldn't know where the real riches are. See? So here's what James wants us to understand, first of all, that when the gospel comes into your life, it is a radical reversal of everything, everything, including your wealth and your status and your view of them. James wants you to know that when it comes to your relationship with God vertically, that whether you're rich or poor doesn't change God's mind about you. It doesn't change anything you are not better or worse in God's eyes because you are rich or you are poor. So let me tell you this morning, right off the bat, the lesson we learn as a Christian is this. We need not to evaluate ourselves by the material standards. So I do not compare myself with someone else and say they are better or I am worse based on my bank account or how many cars I have or the house I live in or the neighborhood I am in. I don't, they don't measure myself by whether I don't wear that name brand clothes or you wear that. See, that's not how Christians, where the gospel reverses everything, see themselves. They don't measure themselves that way. It's not about externals. It's not about how thin I am or beautiful I am or how in much of shape I am or how I look or, or none of those things because that's not how God's people who have been invaded by the gospel view life. See, he says it's the spiritual standards that are part of God's reversal when it comes to the gospel. See, we as Christians value a different kind of riches the most. Not earthly ones, but eternal ones. A different kind of status. And see, go on Facebook or go on social media, and you'll find that that is completely antithetical to what the world thinks. They want to have the car. They want to brag and boast about the clothes they wear and the money they have and the vacations that they take and the job that they have and the money and the power and the position that goes with us. But see, here's what God says in reverse to what everything around you is telling you. Low people, re rejoice in that God has brought you high. Not rejoicing or waiting for God to get you rich, but real riches, 
He says, and if you are high and you are rich, you have that status, rejoice in this. Not that you're wealthy and not that you have the power. Rejoice in this, that God's grace has so actively worked in your life to bring you low and humble you so that you can see what really matters in life. As one author puts it, when the chess game is over, both the king and the pawn go back in the same box. And that's God's view. God's view when he looks at you this morning is not what you have, but who you are. See, in our world, right? In our world, rich people boast in their riches. And poverty or poor people wish they had riches, and they certainly don't boast in their poverty. In fact, there is a dangerous sect of what they say themselves to be Christians. They're not. But they're, it's called the health and wealth gospel. And they boast like the world in saying that, see, if you had enough faith to trust God, then he would give you health and wealth. And the problem is that you're not rich or you're healthy is because you lack faith. See, there's a Greek word for that lie, and it's called baloney. <laughs> see, these people have failed the boast test. Because they're rejoicing and boasting in the fact that God has taken them low and made them rich. See, they've got it completely backwards. And can I say even stronger? It is a perversion of the gospel that reverses everything. So you have people like Joel Olstein and Stephen Furtick and Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland and Kreffler Dollar. Do not listen to them. They have failed, utterly failed, the boasting and the gospel test. The old hymn puts it this way, and you know these words. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, hear this, my richest gain I count but lost and pour contempt on all my pride. You see what, this, see what he's saying? When you get to the cross, what you thought was what made you great, you pour contempt on it. What you thought was what you were proud about, now you can't stand it. See, that's what the gospel does. It changes. Not because it's wrong to be rich. There are great, godly, rich people in the Bible and horribly evil, poor people. It's because it's not our boast, he says. And then he ends up the song with this. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast. One boast, he says. Save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me must, most... I sacrifice them to his blood. You see what he says? When the cross comes into your life, it reverses everything. And what you used to boast in, what you used to maybe think was your identity, no longer is. And you pour contempt on that. And you boast in now what nobody else would boast in. A cross where a Savior bled and died for our sins. See, James says that only when you ask and receive for God's wisdom, of God's wisdom, verses 5 through 8, can you ever pass the boasting test? Can you ever adopt the countercultural view of how God views wealth and status? See, you'll never realize that the greatest riches cannot be put in your account physically or in your wallet. They can only be put in your heart and in your life and in your family. So both of them, rich people and poor people, here's what they need. Spiritual wisdom. Spiritual wisdom to have the right perspective. When you say, Pastor Walker, okay, I got it. I understand that concept, but how do I do that? Because you're looking around, and you're looking at Christians even sometimes, 
And you're wondering how in the world does that happen because that goes against everything in this culture, everybody I talk to. So why would people, Pastor, if you're rich and you have a lot of money, a lot of good things, why would you ever boast in your humiliation? What perspective does God give us his cultural wisdom that would allow that to be true of us as believers? Well, James answers that. Look at verse 10. Let the brother boast in his exaltation, the rich in his humiliation. Now, circle this in your Bible. See the word because. See how it ends? See that? Because, and then how verse 11 starts with a little word for. See, those are words that connect things. And what he's going to do is now give you reasons. Why would anyone adopt the wisdom of God? Why would you do that? Here's why. Because you got to know something. You got to know something about the nature of earthly status and wealth. And he's going to tell you this is God's wisdom because, like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises and its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. Here's what it is this is a contrast between what is permanent. And what is perishable? See, here's what James says. See, passing the boasting test when it comes to wealth, you'll have to get this in your mind, that all the things the world offers and buys with money will never last. It's temporary at best. It's passing away. The word means to literally disappear. We would say today in our modern vernacular, it's here today and gone tomorrow. He goes on at the end of verse 11 says, so also will the rich man, see the word, fade away. So he's driving it home in our minds. Listen, it will pass away. It will fade away. And he wants you to understand that even as we talk, your physical material wealth is leaving you. Even as we sit here, put your money in the market. One day it may be up, and the next day you may be down. And it's worse than that. Because when you die, no matter how many millions you may have, it will not help you on the day of judgment. And he wants you to see just how transitory wealth and money is. And in this little verse... He puts four little staccato-type verbs that come in succession to one another to give you how fleeting it is. He says, it scorches like the sun, and then it withers, and then it falls, and then it perishes. It's like a process. The sun comes out, it's so hot, so scorching hot, and we know what that feels like lately, right? I mean, the high temperatures, the humidity. I mean, have you seen the West Coast recently? I mean, Palm Springs, I think it was 118 degrees. I mean, it is really hot. So you're out there, it's scorching, and the scorching withers. I mean, it just can't stand up to the heat. And it begins to crumple and go lower to the ground. And then it says, the flower falls. And it's interesting, it's the word face. It's like the petals on a flower begin falling off one at a time. Because the beauty of it, the outward appearance of it, once it was absolutely gorgeous, and now you look at it and it looks like it's dead because it is dying. And then it perishes. It's over. I mean, that quick, it comes up, and in just a short period of time, the whole thing is gone. And here's what, please hear me, that's how riches are. 
he says. That's the simile, that's the metaphor, that it will be burned up literally. Hear me, riches are not eternal, not those kind of riches. One of my favorite movie series is The Lord of the Rings. I, I love it. I've watched it more times than I would publicly want to tell you. Um, and in it is Thorin Oakenshield. Is that just not a cool name? I mean, it's a little dwarf guy, but it's a macho name, I think. Thorin Oakenshield, he is dwarf king under the mountain. Now, if you know anything about Tolkien's uh, Middle Earth, dragons are there, and dragons are greedy for gold. I mean, they love it. They're, we would say today they're obsessed or addicted to it. And this dragon in particular, Smog, the reason that he descends on Erebor, which is the mountain kingdom of the dwarves, is because he wants their gold. And so he does, and he basically sacks the whole place and destroys a big part of it. And the lonely mountain is now his domain, and he piles all the gold up in the great hall of thrones. It's gigantic. And the whole thing, I mean, tens of 20 to 30 feet deep, probably gold all across the whole thing. And he is in this dwarf kingdom and castle for 171 years, the book says. He dwells there. All this gold, all that time. Now, what the writer calls it, he says, is dragon sickness. See, dragon sickness is when the dragon's love for gold becomes your love for gold. And anyone who comes in contact with it and touches all the gold in there after the dragon's been in there so long is most likely going to get the dragon sickness. And that's what happens to Thorin Oakenshield. Now, he came there to reclaim his kingdom. And he came there with all the other dwarves. And after all of this time, almost 200 years, he's going to get back what rightly belongs to his people and his kingdom. He's really looking, and he's willing to risk everything for it, and he has good intentions until he touches the gold. And then it changes him. But listen, at first, he doesn't see it in himself. He was warned ahead of time before they ever got there that his dad or his grandfather had the same problem and it made him go crazy and he lost everything. But he doesn't really listen. You know why? Because Thorin Oakenshield, as great as he was, thinks he can handle it. But he totally, once he gets dragon sickness, totally loses perspective. I mean, to the point where Bilbo, who's the guide, the hobbit guide, he wants to take him and throw him off the castle and kill him. His own best friend, another dwarf, comes to him and tells him what he's doing. Look at yourself. And he says, if you don't get out of my presence, I'm going to kill you. I mean, he doesn't care about all of the citizens of Lake Town, the little town nearby, that the dragon's going to come and wipe them out. He doesn't care. You know why? He has his gold. And Thorin Oakenshield allows dragon sickness to completely skew his perspective on everyone and everything. You see, fast forward that to our day. It's not dragon sickness. It's money sickness. And people have it. Perhaps you have it. And you know what the insidious thing about it is? Most people don't know it. They don't know it. Just like Thorne didn't realize it. But it's taking over their lives. I have read the Gospels many times, many times through. And I have come to find this and discover this truth. Did you know that Jesus never says, never says, beware of adultery. 
He never says, beware of sexuality like fornication. He never says that. But you know what he says more than once? Beware of money, riches, material things. In fact, did you know this in the Gospels that Jesus talked about money 10 times more than he talked about sex? Why? Because sex doesn't matter and Jesus doesn't really care? Absolutely not. He does care extremely much about your moral purity. But you know what the difference is? When you are doing sexually things wrong in your life, you know you are. You know you are. But when you get caught up in money and things and material possessions, Jesus says beware because you are deceived by it. You are like thorn oak and shield. You don't understand how much of a grab and a hold it has on your life. In all my years as pastoring, I've had many times, men and women both, come to me and say, Pastor Walker, would you counsel me because I'm working through sexual sin in my life many, many times. But you know, and I've been here 25, 35 years in the ministry, I have never had one single person say to me, Pastor Walker, I'd like you to counsel me because I'm greedy. I'm, Pastor Walker, I'm really struggling with covetousness. Oh, Pastor Walker, I am so materialistic. I have never once, until after this message, I have never once had that happen. Not one time. You know why? Because you don't think it's a problem for you. You may be deceived by it, see? You may be deceived by it. See, I believe fully as I read scripture that your attitude toward money and material possessions is a great indicator of your true spiritual condition. And a lot of people, even God's people this morning, could be in danger of money sickness. I would like to take the time this morning and have you read two passages in 1 Timothy with me. Would you turn there, please? The first is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. Let me read it for you. As for the rich in this present age. See, we have to be told this. Why would he have to tell people who are Christians this? Because we're deceived by it. Charge them, command them, tell them not to be haughty. See, that's the underlying problem with money. It's pride. It's boasting in what you should not be boasting in. Nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. But tell them this. Don't do that, but put your hope on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich. See how he keeps using the word, the different kinds of riches? Richly to enjoy, rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold on that which is truly life or literally they may lay hold on eternal life. You see how he starts? If you are rich in this age, you better look at riches that have for the next age. Don't trade off your future so that you can be rich in the present, he says. Now, you know what happens when you get money sickness? Here's what happens. That you get arrogant and proud 
Have you ever seen some rich people? Proverbs says the rich speak rough. They deserve what they get, and they think they should be able to tell everyone else to do. They become experts not in money only, but in everything else because they have money. And see, they are people who are ensnared, the Bible says, and they stop doing good works, and they start just serving themselves. They don't have time to do anything else. Once They'll give money toward it instead of giving themselves toward it. They, what do they do? The Bible says that they don't do good works, and they don't share with other people who have greater needs. Now, why is all that written? Because we need signs. Do you understand? We need signs. We need someone to tell us, hey, if you, are money, you have money sickness, this is what it looks like when you have it. So he says, let me tell you, this is what it will look like for you, right? Next passage, right down the same page, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. So let me tell you this, it's not that you have money that's the problem. No, because that would be simply external, and even lost people could stop that. But it's internal. It's what you want money to do for you or be for you. It's your boast. Because remember what we said? What you boast in, you live for. That's the problem. Listen to the verses. But those who desire to be rich. So if you're poor today, this could be you. You don't have to be rich to have this problem. You can be a wannabe, right? They desire to be rich, fall into temptation. See how money and testing and trials and temptations go together? Into a trap, a snare, into many senseless and harmless desires. So loving money and desiring to be rich never stays in a corner. It spreads throughout your life and brings all kinds of horrible desires that you can't righteously fulfill in other areas. And therefore, you see people who are into money. How could they have so much money and do that crime and beat their girlfriend? How in the world could they get high and be caught and be pulled over? How do you get drunk like that? How do you do that? How do you waste your... You know why? Many senseless and harmless desires that plunge people in ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money, but loving it is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving. See how he talks about desire and craving? That some, listen to this, what's at stake? Is that, well, you might not be, you might lose your money. Okay, you might ruin your marriage. You might lose your job in the end. You might be poor. No, way beyond that, see. Way beyond that. Some have wandered away from the faith. They didn't pass the boasting test. Their faith was never real. It was bogus. And the way they responded to and their attitude toward money and things only indicated it. And they have pierced themselves through with many pangs or many sorrows. You see, that was Thorn Oakenshield, dragon sickness. In reality, he couldn't handle it. And he almost lost everyone and everything that was dear to him. Can I tell you this morning, let me make an application for that. There are many young people today, some of them in our churches at times, about the ages of 18 to 25, and the statistics are out there, and you can read them. When they go to high school and leave their family, go to college, they don't go to church anymore, and when they grow up, they don't come back that much either. Many of our young people are wandering away from the faith. Could it be that one of the reasons, not the only, but one of the reasons is, is because they've been inundated in a culture and perhaps grew up in a home where their parents had money sickness? 
And now, you have, now they have it too, see. See what the Bible says? When you have money sickness, you get trapped. Trapped. Have you ever seen a trap? They don't put a trap out there and leave it out in the open. What do they do? They cover it up with stuff. So the animal can't see it. Or they put food on it. Why? Because they're trying to deceive you. The trap is a deception. It's a trick. It looks really good. And it smells really good. But in the end, it's really, really bad. Because it'll be your end. And that's what's happening to our young people. See, they're trapped and ensnared by the American dream. And we, if we're not careful, have fostered it. Because the American dream, can I tell you honestly, will end in a nightmare. Telling our kids from the earliest ages that they need to be in the best schools and spend exorbitant amount of money on it. Starting early, we have taught them that only the best will do. From grade school all the way through college. And the most important thing is the resume that they pad. And they have to do all kinds of things in high school to make that resume what it is. And they have no time for God. Best suburbs, we have to live in the best schooling districts and the houses and the schools, and we have to travel on the teams. And not because any of those things are inherently wrong, but we are teaching our children, if we are not careful, that money solves all problems. So we are raising a generation who are trapped in money sickness. And the worst part of it is, they don't even know it. They are trading off their future, and for some, their eternal future, so that they can reach the top in the present. I have found out this. It says, tell them to do this so that they can lay hold on eternal life. I have found us, and Jesus is right, you can't love God in money. You can't hold on to riches in this life and hold on to riches in the next life as well. And for our young people, it has become their boast to the point for some that spiritual riches have no value whatsoever. To tell them the importance of coming to church and reading your Bible and praying and serving God and others and sacrificing to go on a trip and do all the things that they should be involved in and be the most important things in their life, they don't even see it. It's almost a mockery to them. So let me ask you, is your children or your boast more in their GPA i.e., knowing their subjects or knowing their God? Is your boast more in your progress at work or your progress in Christ-likeness? Not because you shouldn't progress at work, not that you shouldn't do any of those things, but what matters most? Is your boast more in your children's spiritual resume or their educational resume? Is your boast more in what you can do or what your children can do, things on the outside, or is your real boast on who you are and what they are in Christ on the inside? I have a new bumper boast sticker. It won't go over, so don't plan on making any money off of it. My child is a God-honoring student. Not that you're not a student and not even a good one, 4.0 4.0 is fantastic. Valid Victorian, fantastic. But not without God. We're going to sing a song as we close our service today in just a few moments. And you know it, I think most of you would. All I have is Christ. That title in of itself couldn't even be, make any sense if your boasting is anything but Him. 
The words on the last verse I want to draw your attention to. And it says this, Now, Lord, I would be yours alone and live so all might see. In other words, this is my boast. The strength to follow your commands could never come from me. In other words, I can't live this life. I can't have that view on status and wealth. I couldn't view that, those things like that. I could never do it because no one else is doing it. How would I ever do it, he says. It never comes from you. You can't get the power on your own. Oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose and let my song forever be my only boast is you. That's a song we need to teach our kids. That's the song we need to teach ourselves. Jesus, my only boast is you. Let's pray. Jesus, please forgive us for the false art of modesty, for boasting in things that don't even compare with who you are and what you've done. Lord, we are glad, and there's nothing wrong with praising people for accomplishments, whether it's someone else or our children, those things are not wrong. But when it becomes our boast, when it becomes our highest praise, when it begins to consume and take over our lives, and it begins to push you, Lord, out to the periphery and margins of our life, it becomes idolatry. And Father, we don't see it. Please open our eyes, take away the blindness spiritually in our hearts, that we might see the grip that gold has on us. And with your liberating and emancipating power, would you free us from it? Free our generation. Give us a generation of adults and parents and young people who have as their only boast the Lord Jesus Christ. That it may be obvious for all to see that the key to joy and happiness in life cannot be bought with a credit card, but only through Jesus Christ. It cannot come through attaining certain degrees or positions or amounts of money, but only through a relationship, a vital relationship with you. May that be our priority. May we take the words, seek ye first the kingdom of God, seriously. Help us to that end, Lord. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen.